Our guest today is a great guitar player who you may know from the band Wolfpack, as well as his solo career. You've also probably heard about his new signature pedal that recently came out, and if you've been listening to this podcast recently, well, you know he's responsible for my new Strat addiction. A huge welcome to Corey Wong. Woo. Happy to be a catalyst for more guitars <laughs> in your collection. Happy to be with you today. Happy to be with the the collaborator of the Wong Compressor. That's a good one. I, mm. I hear that's a great compressor to get. It's all right. It's a We're wonderful on the street, compressor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brian, I, I I mean, I know you're coming at me with questions, but I have I have questions. You're the only one who's cracked the code on on compression pedals. Oh, we'll get there. We'll okay, get there. I'm going to let you ask your questions first. Oh, make sure you leave a few minutes for me at the end. Sure. I got to ask. You are the I. You can see I have a I have a husky toolbox, yes. like a big toolbox that's yeah. uh, you know industrial grade that has 42 compressor pedals in it right now. And I've only found two that I actually like for guitar. One being the Ego Comp and the Wong Compressor, which we kind of altered the Ego Comp sure. and uh, did some things on it. But well, we're going to get there. I just want to know why the other 40 aren't awesome to my ears. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll get there. And I know you're going to be, I know you're going to be humble about it and whatever. We'll, we'll get there. But I am because I'm such a compression junkie, as you know, obviously. But we'll we'll get there. But just make sure you save a few sure. minutes at the end because sure. uh, we need answers. I need answers. I mean, it's I need answers. Yeah. It's very kind of you to give him a warning to think about it because he'll be like pulling back information from about 1999 now. He'll be searching through his mental filing cabinet like that. Uh, In 1993, uh, Texas me, Instruments came out with a new OTA. Yeah. Uh, let me ask ChatGPT about this. <laughs> he's, he's banned. No ChatGPT. Come on. Hey, Texas Instruments, that was the Ridge. That was the OG <laughs> ChatGPT, though. That's know. right. That graphing calculator? That thing is dope. (laughs) Oh, they were banned from exams in this country. Like, you could only have, yeah, you couldn't have their most advanced calculator because you could do a lot with it. Add memory and stuff. You could do more than writing rude words that were only visible if you turned it upside down. That's what I was saying. Um, You could play Drug Wars. Did you ever play that on the TI? Yeah, I remember Drug Wars. Not on a calculator. I did play it on a... Yes. What? Yeah, dude. There was a game called Drug Wars that you could play on those... On those graphing calculators. Mm-hmm. Really? You were literally yes. a drug dealer and you had to go. It was like a word based game where you had to like choose your own adventure type of thing. And you were selling, you could pick, oh, I want to sell heroin today. Like, yeah, it was. That uh, sounds like a Tuesday for me. It was like Oregon Trail for Baltimore. <laughs> it's actually a really addicting game, though. No, no, no fun. I love that. Game. I don't know why so I picked much. on Baltimore there. Just, <laughs> just there was just a 50 whether I was going to go Cincinnati or Baltimore there, and I just decided to go Baltimore. It, it applies both, both ways. Yeah. We, I was going to say Martinsville, Indiana, but you know that's fine. That's um, mostly meth here. Oh, okay, so, sure. Yeah, I don't sure, think totally meth didn't feature heavily in in drug wars. It was only. The, the classic drugs, I think, that came through that. That's right. Uh, especially on that calculator. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, well, you learn something new every day. Well, sometimes. <laughs> yep. So, okay, so obviously I'm not going to do like a formal interview. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that we we don't do that. It's, you know, just a talk. But I have to ask Corey, because I've been thinking about this. I'm thinking of like little young Corey Wong, you know, 10-year-old Corey Wong and He's in the band playing drums or whatever. Like, where, 
What led you to here? What's what's young Corey Wong look like? I was always interested in music. I didn't come from a family of musicians, but my family is always very into music. My dad had a huge record collection, amazing stereo. The stereo was the centerpiece of the living room, centerpiece of the house, basically, mm. right? So very much a music listening family. My uncles, you know, my, my family is all really into music, but didn't come from a family of uh, musicians who played, right? So um, music was something I was always interested in. Also, I grew up kind of in that golden era of MTV, kind of before the reality shows took over. I mean, I guess there was like real world and road rules and stuff on there, which were just like, you know, it was just to break it up a little bit. But MTV was kind of a babysitter for me as a kid when I get home from school. And I remember, you know, as like a skateboarding kid, you know, teenager watching, you know, as 12 years old, watching Green Day, Blink-182, Foo Fighters, Smashing Pumpkins, all these, you know, the Beastie Boys, all these bands, Chili Peppers, those, those bands in particular, watching them thinking like, oh my gosh, this music is making me feel something. It's it's like helping me relate to something. It's helping, like this represents who I am. This is, these are my feelings. This is what I am. And I just got so into it. And then I thought, well, what if I could do that for myself and if I could do that for other people? So I started playing instruments. I started a little band and I realized like, oh my gosh, I can manipulate emotions with music. I can do it for myself. I can express myself. I can help my friends express themselves. And, you know, it was also just so fun. It was a fun thing. It was a fun challenge. It was like a game at the same time, like trying to figure out how to play the instrument, how to master the instrument. And um, yeah, it was just, it was, it was really that sort of thing where it was, trying to figure out how to find an emotional connection through music and, and, and a way to express who I am as a person. And, you know, I've had varying degrees of, of staying in touch with that throughout the years. And I went, you know, had different phases of musical influence and genres that I was into. And, you know, there was a period where I was just much more interested in the guitar and mastering the guitar. And then I kind of had, at that point, had lost a little bit of, the sense of expression of self. It was more about what can I do on this instrument? How good can I get on the instrument? And and although I, I talk about that as if it's a bad thing, like, oh, I, I spent that time and I lost touch with the emotional connection and, and the expression of self. I, I think I needed that. I personally needed that in my growth where I just needed time to just master the instrument, become the best that I could and you know, I, I guess from a technical standpoint, like 10 years ago, I was maybe technically better at the guitar. I don't know. That, that's I, 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 Plenty of people could argue otherwise, but I, because I was just, I was practicing just eight focusing. hours a day. Yeah. It was just all the stuff. It, everything was so fluid. I was just blazing fast, lead and rhythm, all this stuff. But then it, it kind of came full circle again. It was like, oh, well, what do I have to say here? Like I'm, I'm good mm -hmm. at the guitar, but like, what does it matter if I have nothing to say? I'm right. regurgitating other people's lines or playing stuff that whatever. And, and I was, you know, obviously I'm a creative person. So I was <clears throat> allowing myself to, to explore some of that, but I didn't really uh, stay in touch with what my voice is. And then eventually, and this is by the way, for anybody who's listening, who's younger, when I turned 30, I realized, oh, I need to find my own voice and boom. 
all those years of studying Prince, studying Earth, Wind & Fire, studying Pat Metheny, studying all the punk rock stuff, studying Jamiroquai, Chili Peppers, all of that, all of a sudden came to a culmination of, uh, it was a culmination of all those influences and being in a band that was playing R&B and funk all the time that kind of it's like, oh, well, what if I blend this with this with this, all with this punk rock energy? And then I started playing this stuff and people were like, whoa, that sounds just very much like you. I don't know anybody else who does that. Like, oh, okay, interesting. And then I found ways more and more to express who I am and found kind of came back to that journey of finding my voice and who I am on the instrument while maintaining that um, that technical mastery and you know that dedication to the craft of guitar as well. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned skateboarding. That's and I find it interesting because both Richard I and I, pick up on that Richard away. and I, were both like just so, so into skateboarding. <laughs> nice. I, oh yeah. Oh, yeah was, not me. I wasn't. I, oh wait I, a minute. I, well, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, but you were like a street skater, so it doesn't count. Oh, so okay. we, were, okay. we were OGs in the eighties, Blake. You weren't even <laughs> born when we were skating. Oh, Come you on. had yeah. You had a board with one lip on it. <laughs> See, I, I grew up with two on the bottom. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't have rails on the bottom of my board. Mm-hmm. I had a twin I, tip. It, I, mm-hmm. I did. I mean, I picked up something from New York. I think I'm going to say about '94. It was when skateboards went to small wheels and and uh, like the the twin tail is. The half yeah. pipe was out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was all right on that, but I still prefer the old, you know, uh, slightly spooned nose. Fat wheels. That that's me because you know I'm I'm not a delicate guy. So uh, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I was definitely into the skating back then. Um, when did you start skating, Corey? I started skateboarding in fifth, fourth grade, and I I was really into it. I mean, that was my thing. Mm-hmm. I was it was skateboarding and punk rock. It, you know, like this... I mean, the Warp Tour was was spoon fed to me. You know, like yeah. I, now I, you're honestly, talking Blake's as, language. Now Blake yeah, comes yeah. alive. As, as a kid, I thought, I thought like the Warp Tour is it. This is this this was handmade for me and my friends. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, you find out when you go. It's like, oh yeah, us and twenty thousand other people in every other major city. <laughs> right. Which, but you know, they really made it. It feel like a community. They made it feel like a thing. That's the skateboarding thing. It does create a community. And yeah. like for, for me and Brian's generation, definitely for me, I got into bands like Anthrax, Metallica, Suicidal Tendencies, all back in the eighties because me and my friend were into skateboarding. And actually, in in England there was a very, very underground scene. So we were mm. importing magazines from America and all our culture from America. Yeah, and. I've since, you know, through through some of the design work we've done, I've since got, you know, uh, friendly with a couple of skateboarders. And they say exactly the same thing as you. It's the sense of community. Like, I've never met a skateboarder that I didn't just get on with and could talk for hours about music or skating or anything. Yeah. It's just such a great community. So, uh, and, and I think it's that's been true of every generation of skateboarders, including mine and Brian's, or as we like to call it, the, the, the grandpappy. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, but that's 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 cool, though. I mean, you that's like you know, and and then you you see pl- skaters that that transcend that, like young Tony Hawk, Rodney Mullen, Caballero yeah. is still in the game. Oh, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's like yep. there there is also a community thing because there's kind of a counterculture thing to it. In the same way, where a lot of musicians that are into more niche genres feel a little more of a sense of community. You know, where it's like for me, I wasn't. I wasn't a great baseball player. I wasn't great at basketball, so, but yeah. you know, I could kick flip off the four stair. I could do a crooked grind at the skate park. You know, I could like, 
you know, my friends and I, we, we had this different thing and, you know, I, I wonder now, because nowadays there's with YouTube in the same way that music has progressed and it's so much easier to see how people do stuff. If we had YouTube as kids, if we had oh, like, man. the same sort of access to to knowledge of like, yeah, how about you don't wear those gigantic, heavy, baggy jeans when you're skateboarding? It's going to help you. Like you're right. going to be able to ollie a lot higher. It's going to be a lot easier to do these tricks if you wear clothing that is more conducive to athletic activities. You're just like, just you're not going to look as cool. It, yeah. It, you know, so you got to have the Jane you know, that's the only way to you're, properly kick. You're wearing flip, them telling. right now, aren't you? Like, I, I'm actually literally wearing Coriol like this. I'm literally wearing some Dicky shorts like it's 2002 right now. Nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It feels good. But I have my Vision Streetwear on you know, from, <laughs> you from 1984. Is that bad? No, I'm that's great. Nothing. Actually, I love um, that. But. Uh, in in this in the skateboard thing, like we had to learn our tricks from diagrams in Thrasher magazine. Totally, <laughs> totally. <laughs> explanations no and interviews. It was like move this foot here, and I was like, this doesn't work. So you, you're 100. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure, like you see skateboarding in the Olympics, technically so much better. But uh, you know, you've got to give a huge shout out to, as you say, people like Tony Hawk and. Like for me, when the video games came out, oh man, it basically oh, yeah. like rebirthed my entire like teenage years yeah. and musical tastes instantly. Yep. And like my wife will attest to this, she has sat and watched me skate like hours on Tony Hawk's one, two, three, and probably four. Uh, um, yeah. So, who is yeah. who is the skater we just worked with recently? Sent some Cut stuff out. Grabkey. Grabkey, yeah. Oh, nice. And you were like fanboying like crazy, like, oh my God. Oh my so, God. yeah. I, very briefly, Corey, we had to redesign the, the Tumnus, the graphic on the Tumnus. And, and yeah. when we did, I was like thinking of time travel. And like, I'm a big Doctor Who fan, but we already had a Doctor Who pedal. And then I remembered my deck when I was 16 was a Klaus Grabkey deck with an exploding clock. And I thought, oh, exploding clocks, time travel, we're in. So yeah. I drew this kind of uh, exploding clock design. Like a year later, it found its way to him, and he was like, "Exploding clocks, cool." I was like, "Oh my god, I cannot believe!" Like, out of That's everybody dope. I've ever met, that was like the the coolest thing ever. I was like, "This is mm-hmm. unreal." But yeah, he's a super nice guy, and his um his uh, son's got a, a a band. I think they're called the Picture Books. They're awesome. Um, yeah. he, he's very involved in the music scene right now. So yeah, it's crazy how there's so many skaters like Caballero and others who are also great musicians as well. Like it's kind of yeah. like the two go go together a little mm-hmm. bit in a weird way. Um, but you know, <clears throat> excuse me. So as, so going back a little bit, picturing you like in your room just shredding. What, at what point were you like, you know what? I don't I don't think I'm going to be roofing houses for a living. Maybe I should try this music thing. I think, well, even when I first went to college, I went, I didn't go for music. I went for science. (laughs) I knew I was, I knew I was really good at music only because I worked really hard. I didn't have, I didn't have the same natural thing. I was not a very much a natural born talent by any means. I was just, I was willing to do the relentless work to get good at the thing. And I knew that I had that in me uh, and the drive. I don't think, I don't think I knew in my, I, I don't think I, I, in my brain knew that I was going to be a professional musician until I was 20. I knew from the time 
I, from the time I first got a bass guitar, that was my first instrument when I was 12 years old, I'm going to be, I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I just didn't really have, I didn't have mentors growing up that I could see or talk to that were doing the thing. It just seemed like it, I, I didn't really know. Like I wasn't a part of a local scene other than people just kind of playing gigs with their band a few times a year, like, you know, or, you know, 10 times a year max or something. That's like, like what we were doing in, in high school and college or, you know, right into college. Right. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really have, I didn't see a blueprint for it. I didn't have a lot of people who are professional musicians around me in my life. And then eventually I started playing more and my name was starting to be talked about around town in the Minneapolis scene. And then, you know, i started connecting with, with professional musicians and it was like, oh yeah, there's a lot of people doing this thing on a local level, national level, regional level. It's not just the Foo Fighters and, you know, those kinds of bands out there and the Mayors and the Maroon Fives and right. the, you know, Dave Matthews. It was like, oh, there's a lot of levels to this thing. And I just didn't, I didn't have examples of that. So that's why I didn't choose it. If I would have had more examples or have seen that more growing up, I'm sure I would have probably recognized it maybe when I was 16, 17. I think all my teachers, everybody around me knew it was like, you know, I was learning, you know, speaking of Metallica, I have, I had this book of all the Kirk Hammett guitar solos that I got when I was in seventh grade. And I was learning all these solos. I was learning the Hetfield parts. I was learning the Hammett parts. I was learning, you know, I I still have a bunch of these original guitar tab books that I got when I was a kid, just because I look at them and I think about like, oh my gosh, like I really sat down for hours, hours and learned note for note, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, the entire album all the way through on guitar and bass. <laughs> and I'm thinking now, like if, if I saw a seven, seventh grade kid doing that, I'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, let's, let's put something into that. Let's come on, mm-hmm, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. Mm-hmm. You know, or it's like, come on, where, I mean, I had, I did have the support system. My, my family has been, been cheering me on for this the whole time. It's never been a thing of like, oh, you should try something else. And honestly, I, somebody was just asking me the other day, like, oh, did your parents bug you to like go practice or anything? My parents never once told me, hey, you should go practice. It's just, I always wanted to, I always had the drive to. So, you know, thinking back on it now, it's like, of course, but I just didn't have, I didn't know. I, di- I didn't know it was possible because I just didn't know any any people who were making a living as musicians. So I figured, oh yeah, I'm going to have band. I'm going to have a band. We'll play on the weekends once in a while. You know, I'll, I'll book gigs. We'll hang out at the house and write songs and, you know, I'll make records and whatever. But uh, yeah, I was probably 20 years old. I uh, finally, I realized, huh. oh, this is available to me. And then boom, I just, I've not looked back ever since. It, it's a tough thing because I had a really similar view on things. Like the only way I could envision being a part of the music industry at that age was being in a touring band and like being the guy on stage and shredding in front of thousands of people. That was the only thing that existed in my brain. Mm. When in reality, there are thousands, if not millions of jobs in the music industry. There's even a way that some dork can talk to people on the internet and make a living <laughs> doing it. Wait a minute, you that make wasn't a thing at the time. Hey, 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 you don't have to keep calling me names. Hey, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about oh, me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Brian, There's, we don't make even... a living out of this. That's what you need to remember. <laughs> Only Blake's got it figured out. <laughs> so there's even that's even a possibility, right? There's so many different angles. You could run sound. You could there's there's a million different jobs in the music industry. And 
I think everybody needs to realize that they could be a part of it if they really wanted to. That's something I'm really passionate about putting out there because I didn't realize that at the time either, that there was any other avenue other than being a megastar. I thought yeah. that was it, yeah. which does, is totally illogical looking back, but that's what I thought at the time. You are a megastar, though. I'm just going to let you know that. You are to me. Anyway. <laughs> sure, sure, um, sure, sure. No, I tell my daughter this. So my daughter and her boyfriend, her boyfriend's just finished a degree in like music tech or whatever. And I'm like, listen, the one thing I've learned from working in the industry is there's so many avenues. Just just do something. If you love yeah. it, just do it. You'll figure out a way to monetize it. Exactly. I didn't have the confidence when I was younger. And I was like, I love music, but it's a hobby. And I actually, I, I started off on the guitar and then I had a weird experience when I was in my teenage years where I just went completely like acid jazz, funk crazy and stopped playing the guitar and started playing the drums because that was like my expression for me. I was like, this is what I'm good at. And then I realized I wasn't a virtuoso and I was like, I'm kind of just going to leave that aside as a hobby and mm-hmm. move on. And then in later life, I've started actually taking it a lot more seriously and, and learning it. So I wish I had the confidence that you had at 20 because I was like, I've got to learn about IT, need to fix computers, that is money. <laughs> and, yeah. and that was it for me. And this was all just a hobby. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm like in my late 40s now. I'm like, oh, I've wasted 25 years of my life with this shit. Yeah, that's well, I did, I did know that I could always... I mean, I... As a kid, I I was good with computers. I was good with software. I never I never thought about my plan B, but I did always in the back of my head know like I can go back to do it. Like when I was in high school, I had a job for an architect. I was a drafter. We had for whatever reason our high school had this amazing drafting program that I just devoured all of the classes in the first two years. So when I was a junior in high school, I was working at an architectural firm. And wow doing drafting and, and whatever, and just kind of helping around other things as well. I was doing the smaller projects, but I did also kind of always know like, all right, if I have to, I can do that. You know, mm-hmm. I, can, I can go back to work in there. Like I'll let's just go back and get, finish my science degree and whatever. But I did, I, I had to have that confidence though, because I, if I didn't go in a hundred percent, there was kind of no way that I would have allowed myself otherwise you know, like I needed that survival mindset in order to, in order to drive me to, to really go as hard as I did. And you hmm. still go hard. I it do. It doesn't seem yeah, like yeah. you've let the foot off the gas at all. Really. It doesn't seem like you're looking for any, ga- any drafting gigs. But I think there's, here. there's you know, something Bri, deep you're quite the- handy with a framing hammer. Uh, I, I know Blake's found a bit of land between the three of us here, and uh, I'll do, I don't know, I, I could probably do some painting. We could make the website for it, right? Uh, yeah, I could do the website for it. I'll make the manuals for it. How about that? Open door. Shut door. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned all these different types of bands, which... Uh, I mean, on the surface, I wouldn't relate, to, like, I wouldn't relate Metallica, for example, to sure. what you do. Um, I mean, as a musician, I totally see it, but, you know, from a simpler mindset, I guess I wouldn't. How did, yeah. you, how did you develop, I mean, obviously you're in band, but how did, how did you develop, like, this immaculate sense of timing, other than practice? Like, sure. how did you arrive at your style, your identifiable style, where now, if you hear any song, you're like, that's Corey Wong. You don't even yeah. have to hear the song. You hear the first five five notes and you know it's you. 
We'll be right back. Is real music dying? What even is real music and who are we to judge that? Well, my father is a lifelong musician and together we've been making music for over a decade. In our new podcast, we dare to ask the urgent, the weird and the deep questions. And we have a lot of wild stories to tell. No matter what genres you enjoy, whether you're a musician, a producer or a listener, we invite you to discover unconventional perspectives on music. So tune in and go follow Mad Makings of Music wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you, first off. I think uh, two parts of that would be the style and then the timing. The timing one is a little easier to answer, which is I did a few years in drumline, marching band, drum mm. corps, that sort of thing. I, you know, when I was in marching band, there was like in, in drumline leading up to the season, I would spend at least two weeks where I'd sleep with a metronome under my pillow sort of thing, like neurotic. <laughs> you heard neurotic. it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, dude. You want to play like Step Corey yeah, Sleep yeah. with a metronome. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, it's it's dangerous out there. But, you know, multiple, you know, changing up tempos every night, that sort of thing, like internalize 120, internalize 140, internalize 116. Oh, wow. You know, like- It's fascinating. Straight, like, I, it's our, one of our drumline instructors recommended it, and then it was just- it, we got neurotic about it. We got competitive about it. And it was like, who can, who can sleep with the metronome under their pillar the most, you know, whether it had any effect on my timing, I don't know. But the, the fact that I did that that much probably tells you something about like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I had no choice, but to be good at time, like to have good time. Right. right? Because I was that driven for like, if whether the metronome under my pillow or not actually did anything, the fact that I was willing to do that to improve my time Tells you my dedication yeah. to having mm -hmm. a good time, right? So I spent a lot of a lot of time practicing drumline, drumline exercises, and then I transferred that sort of practice routine stuff to my rhythm guitar playing. So it's that sort of diligent lock in with the metronome. When you're playing in drumline, like in the snare line, I was a center snare, so I in the center have three people on both on either side of me, and everybody's playing the exact same thing. And as the section leader, it's my responsibility to, to have full command over the time. And everybody's listening into my timing. So I have to have a certain confidence in my time. But I also have to be able to listen to who in the line is rushing or dragging and kind of help make them aware of it and help kind of negotiate where the timing fits. Okay, everybody over here is rushing. These people are dragging. I got to, you know, or everybody else is rushing. I'm going to try to keep them in time or maybe I go with them just to, to make it feel better, whatever. So that sort of awareness of time, that sort of awareness of, of millisecond differences in things was something I was starting to do when I was 15 years old, you know? So that sort of drumline stuff, really transferring that to the guitar, you know, it's a, at, at the end of the day, timing and that sort of thing is a, a mental focus thing. And then the execution is just about, which instrument, like if you're playing, if you're playing guitar, it's just executing on the guitar. If I'm on the drums, I can do it much better now on the guitar than I can on drums just because I haven't been practicing drums in the last 10 years. Right. I mean, give me a month back on, on the drums and I'll, I'll be able to do it again. But my time is much better on the guitar, not just because I'm always playing it. Um, so that's the timing thing. As far as the style and like you're saying, listening to Metallica, listening to Green Day, you wouldn't 
wouldn't associate that with with what I do and my music. But if you think about it, a lot of what I do, it's it's the it's the harmony, the harmony, the harmonic motion, the chord changes of jazz and funk R and B stuff, like jazz and R and B chords and melodies combined with the rhythms of. Well, I'll say this. Let me make a little, I'll, I'll differentiate a little more. Harmony and melody from R&B and jazz, the rhythm and grooves from funk and R&B, but the energy and drive from the punk rock and metal. You know, so that's that's kind of where those things lie for me. If you listen to some of the way that I play certain, there's a certain sort of, of um, forward momentum to it that you only get from exclusive down, exclusively playing downstrokes. And I got that from Hetfield. You know, hmm. I was at first I was playing a lot of the Metallica too. I was playing master of puppets, <clears throat> alternate picking. It's like, why doesn't it have the same momentum? It's mm-hmm. like, Oh, yeah. you got to do all downstrokes. That's how you get that thing. That's how you get that sound. That's how you get that sort of relentless forward momentum where it, it has a little bit more of a bounce to it because of the nature of the pick going down and up. There's a certain, a certain drive to it that, uh, right. yeah, that, that just comes from downstroke. So a lot of the way that I play some of my patterns, some of my stuff is really, it's, it's exclusive downstrokes for the energy, not for the, for using the technique. It's literally just because that's what the sound calls for, mm-hmm. you know? And then there's certain, um, you know, if you listen to ska guitar, you know, you just put some funk chord changes on it and give it a little more of the like Nile Rodgers treatment. They're kind of, they're very similar, actually. Mm-hmm. A yeah. lot of ska guitar and reggae guitar and funk guitar. You know, there's, there's, there's the Venn diagram overlaps a lot. It's just what kind of harmonic concepts do you put on it? What kind of uh, context do you put around those guitar parts that really kind of determine how you would classify it? So I think some of those things and just kind of relating those things and discovering different ways to pull from punk and ska and metal into the music that I'm playing now, it's totally different. And of course, the guitar tone then, you play the downstroke driving things with a clean guitar tone on a Strat, it's going to feel and sound way different than a BC Rich, you know? (laughs) Exactly. So when you see people on YouTube, I, I just ran across a guy the other day and I'm like, Man, he's got the Corey stuff nailed. <laughs> but but uh, when you see people like that, do you? I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you feel flattered in some sense. But it, absolutely. But are you looking at him saying, "You're close, bitch. You're doing this little thing wrong." Like, yeah, like <laughs> I'm sure you can probably hear like the little intricacies that people don't necessarily have because they're not you. Absolutely, you know? and I can point out every one of them. And I, you know, with some of them, I want to show them. Others, I'm like, ah, I mean, I could show you, but it's better that you have your own interpretation and then take my thing and run with it. You know, right, actually, exactly. interestingly, two other people that I see this sort of thing on the internet, less on the internet. Uh, a, the original one that I was aware of this sort of thing was Schofield. When I was in music college, you got all these guitar players in jazz school trying to sound like Schofield. It's like, oh, you're doing the Schofield thing. But you're not Schofield. Like right. I can tell it's like, oh, that's Schofield. That's somebody doing the Schofield thing. And I got to talk to to John to Schofield about that and, and hearing him discuss, oh, here's how I approach it differently. Here's how blah, blah, blah. And same thing with John Mayer. He's somebody you see on the internet, so many people doing the Mayer thing, 
And then I talked to him and he's like, yeah, I can hear from the other room when it's me and when it's not me. And I was like, yeah, I, I always know when it's actually you and when it's somebody doing your thing. There's, there's a lot of great clones out there. A lot of people yeah. that are doing the mayor thing incredibly well. Um, my thing is now one of those, starting to be one of those things on the internet, which of course I'm very flattered for, uh, flattered that you know people are doing that. Um, I hope that people learn it, master it, and then take it and run with it with their own thing, which is hundred percent. I mean, sure. you mentioned um, you mentioned Niall Rogers, uh, and I saw him play um, at a tribute gig, and and actually the genre of music was more kind of rock-based and they brought him on because I guess he was around and he's, a, he's such a flexible player. Yeah. The thing with watching Niall play, I mean, all of the other guitarists had gone off stage and he was still down there jamming. The yeah. love for his music yeah. that comes out from his playing is just that extra 10% that you cannot learn. It has to come from experience and yeah. love of the music. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. You're going to get people who can emulate all kinds of guitarists to lesser and greater degrees, but it's that final bit of passion for what they do that really elevates them for me to kind of like a, a totally different level. And, and, and Niall is definitely right up there. And obviously you're a huge fan of Prince, as you said, which is very evident in kind yeah. of how you play. Um, what about um, what about other funk guitarists? Have you ever kind of done the whole Eddie Hazel thing, looked at Funkadelic, some of the kind of more raw stuff from the... The seventies, or what about? I mean, you also mentioned Jamiroquai. How about the acid jazz scene from like the late nineties? Did you ever get into that at all? Yeah, I mean, I dabbled you, in but... some of that stuff. I mean, as far as the funk guitar players, the ones that are a little more obvious um, influences for me would be Prince, Nile Rodgers, Rob Harris from Jamiroquai. Mm -hmm. As far as like the the stuff that Quincy Jones produced, Dave Williams and Paul Jackson Jr. Those are huge influences. And, you know, then there's uh, the other modern players like James Valentine from Maroon 5, John Mayer. There's, um, yeah, those, I mean, I guess I would put Rob Harris kind of in that. I mean, he's part of mm -hmm. that that era uh, and, and currently as well. I mean, Rob is, he's to me, Rob is like the most underutilized guitar player on the planet. Yeah. He's <laughs> such, like, he's such an insane guitar player. He's another one where I, I think, you know, once you start to develop a thing, you start to recognize other people's thing too. If once you have a voice and can kind of find it, it's like all of a sudden there's you're maybe a little bit above the clouds and you can kind of see, oh, like you're up here too. You know, like uh, once I really recognized and found my own thing, I was able to start to hear other people's thing much more mm -hmm. potently. And Rob <laughs> is one of those where I'll listen to, you could play me a hundred recordings of funk guitar players on the internet and I'll always be able to know who Rob Harris is by the way that he plays and his feel, his tone, his touch. It's like, he he's actually kind of, he's very much like if he would, he would be in the Venn diagram between uh, Mark Lettieri and I, I feel hmm. like mm -hmm. Rob, yeah, Rob is kind of a, a, a uh, right in between Mark and I, and I, I recognize Mark Rob to me. I, I, I hear a little more. I, I recognize Mark more because like we play together a lot and we have a band together but Rob's thing, I, I just grew up listening to it also. So I, there's a different, uh, oh, that's that, that makes me feel this way. That's why right. I know that it's him or something. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, right. it's strange. Well, I've got one more selfish question. <laughs> then, yeah. then, I'll, then I have to get into some, uh, some listener questions. I was going to say, you're getting in dangerous yeah. territory, Brian. I know. So, so <laughs> your songwriting process. So I, I've been, 
I'm just, I'll just throw it out there. Your, I have like a special playlist that's only your songs I listen to when I'm working out. Yes. And it's just because like it's got the groove. It's got like it's always it's just the right pace for me for whatever reason. That's my thing when I'm working out. <laughs> yeah. it's the Corey Wong playlist. Um, so what? How do you go about the songwriting side of it? Not necessarily just the the guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to say tricks because that's not the right yeah, thing, yeah. but the licks and stuff. You know, I'm mean, yeah, like, yeah. what's your process for writing a song? On my albums, I do. I mean, it's kind of now I split between kind of half vocal tunes, half instrumental tunes, and I don't usually go into writing thinking, "Oh, this is going to be instrumental," or "This is going to be a vocal tune." Uh, maybe five, ten percent of the time, I will, but. Because I'm such a rhythm section junkie, I normally start with a rhythm groove idea, kind of lay down a bed or like a, I guess in the same way a lot of hip hop producers play a beat, you know, they make a beat and then they make something, build something on top of that. I think that's kind of been the foundation of where I start things. And then I hear melodies and then it's just like, where do I hear this going? So I pretty much just, play a section, find a thing that I'm into, come up with a melody for it, and then see where the melody and chords and groove kind of lead me to a next section. Okay, does this thing call for something else? Do I need more? I always try to write with as little as possible to really Mm. get the most mileage out of all the ideas. But I'll, I'll add sections when it feels like, oh, this needs something different. I think that the ear needs, the listener needs to go somewhere else, a bridge whatever, you know? And, um, I kind of, I, yeah, I, 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 most of the time come at it from maybe a producer's mindset of writing, but occasionally I'll just hear a melody in my head and I'll sing it into my iPhone, my phone, you know, a voice memo or something, or I'll hear kind of a riff or a groove. And really, I just kind of need that one idea to spark the thing. And then I'll develop it. I'll set it down and then I'll come back to it. And if I, when I come back to it, if it doesn't really inspire me, I'll throw it away. That's a dud. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the key. Cause I always come back to my tunes and like, what the hell was I thinking here? Like, I have no idea. I do the <laughs> Everything's same thing. a dud with you, right? Everything's you know, a dud. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. that's, Believe that's, me, I got I'm teasing. I'm teasing. fighting talk. There, I got right? hundreds of duds in my phone. Man. I got hundreds I've got of duds. Terabytes of duds over here. Terabytes. <laughs> Dude, I, yeah. And for some reason, I'm hanging on to them because it's like, Come on, you man, you spent know, six hours on that. Don't throw it away. Literally the other day, I found a piece that I wrote um, and and it was kind of a bit Jean-Michel Jarry and I was using some uh, arpeggiators on some weird synths. And I listened back to it, I was like, huh, I was onto something. I need to actually get back into <laughs> it. So sometimes you can find it. But I love the fact that you do, do the iPhone thing because I sometimes, like I'm the same, I, I'll, I'll build from a groove. So I'll think of a bass line and I'll just be like, Bum, 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 bum. And then I'll, I'll come back and I'll be scrolling through my messages. I'll be like, what the hell was I doing <laughs> exactly. here? And, and what substances was I on? And yeah, actually, I might be able to do something with it. But yeah, mm-hmm. no, uh, it's a great methodology. Brian uh, Brian just yeah. makes chicken licking uh, uh, noises in his head. That's, that's everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so we got the listener things we got to dive sure. into. But I, yep. I, I will and be we in have trouble. some compressor talk still, too. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I will you, be in trouble with our me. mutual friend, Corey. I was just talking to Daniel Harmon yesterday. And nice. On the subject of having a feel, he told me he was going to play 
on this or that you were playing on this collab record that he's doing. And I have a track on there as well. And he was like, it's ambient. And I was like, ambient Corey Wong. What's that going to sound like? <laughs> I can't picture that in my head. And then as soon as I heard the track, I'm like, oh, this all makes 100% sense. I love it. This is, this is, he can do everything. Wait, officially. So you, you're saying you have an unreleased Corey Wong track? No, I'm uh, saying it's, it, say came my email. Last, it came out last week. It's, it's, it's public. <laughs> How did yeah. I miss that? You got to send me that link, dude. It's yeah. not, it's not under my name. It's under, what's Daniel's artist name for that? Uh, I believe it's just his name, Daniel okay. G. Harmon. Because I did see it. Pop yeah, it's up. a co- it's a collab record. Yeah, we'll find it later. But we'll yeah, find it check later. That but out. yeah, we'll put it so, in the show notes. Um, so a couple questions from some hardcore listeners here. So Rick Calhoun, super great guy, makes great picks, honey picks. If you're familiar with them, nice. Um, he says he found an older acoustic album of yours. He says ridiculously good. And uh, he wants to know how much session work you do that's not funk related. I hate when people say they pull, they found one of my old records. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that look in your face. I know. <laughs> I like, you oh, said no. it. I was like, oh, Rick, where is this going? <laughs> Man, there's so much music that I made in college that I'm trying to scrub from the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this piece called Why Do All the Nice Girls Hate Me? Yeah. <laughs> Not quite, but yeah, the guitar version of that. <laughs> um, session work that's not funk. A lot. I mean, Dude. honestly, I used to, for a few years, like basically 2014 through 17, I was. I was splitting my time between Minneapolis and Nashville. I have, I mean, I still have a place in Nashville, but I started, I got, I started having a place in Nashville in 2014. I was doing a lot of uh, singer songwriter sessions, pop sessions. I mean, I've played on a handful of country records that you would never know that it's me. Uh, I don't even Hmm. remember what the songs are called. I could pull them up. I could find them, but uh, you know, some, I, I was doing a ton of session work, tons of it. I was playing on, you know, 30 songs a month or something. Hmm. I mean, I, that's not a ton compared to like your Brent Mason's out there and, you know, whatever. But, um, and I guess in today's modern session player world, I guess that's a lot, you know, whatever. Right. But, um, yeah, I've done a bunch. I still enjoy doing it. Uh, I spend so much of my time and energy on my own project now that, um, it is just kind of what, what takes up most of my time and energy. Sure. But I do love, playing on that stuff. I did a lot of acoustic guitar sessions. And nowadays, it now when I do session work, I have to try to internalize, I, I have an internal conversation of, are they looking for Corey Wong or are they looking for good guitar? Because those are two different, th- That's I will approach sure. the session in different ways. You know, so I did, I, a couple years ago, I did this session for a producer who is, uh, for the Blake Shelton record. It was like, Blake Shelton does not want Corey Wong. They are looking for <laughs> guitar right now. And it's like, I'm hired because the producer knows I can get the job done. Blake doesn't care who I am currently. That's fine. I don't care either. Like that, that, that this person, I mean, right now they need guitar. They need it done quick. They need something creative, but also like not going to get in the way. So I'll play my parts, come up with some lines and, and things. And you would never know that it's me. It's just a session guitar player. So for me, that's the thing that I need to, kind of sort out in my brain now hmm. when I'm doing session work is are they looking for my thing or are they looking for, are they just 
hiring a guitar player and they know that I can do the right. job. Just make and the I'm, song sound good. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. I'm fine with both of those. I just a lot of times need to figure what figure out what that is. And and mm-hmm. I had to kind of cu- come to grips with it in a way where I I felt at first kind of bad, like a little bit egotistical, like, oh, you are my thing. You know, but <laughs> but it is like at the same time, like I, I have to, I'm now like, oh, okay, I've had enough people ask me for my thing. Where I, and and enough people ask me not to do my thing, or <laughs> it's just so now I, I'm I'm more comfortable with that conversation, basically. Okay, so Daniel Williams says besides the amazing Wong compressor from Wampler Pedals, available at WamplerPedals.com and other fine retailers, uh, he wants to know <laughs> what is your other go-to pedal. He actually wrote that in the question. No, no, he didn't actually write that. <laughs> I, I may have added a little bit in there. <laughs> Right now, if I were to have, if I were to say four pedals, definitely the Wong compressor. I would use the Optimist Overdrive from Jackson Audio, the GFI Systems Rossi envelope Mm. filter, Mm -hmm. and the Hotone. Hot tone. I don't actually know how to pr- pronounce. I don't it. think anyone does. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, we we'll all go ask. Hot, we'll go with hot tone. It's probably a bit safer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the Soul Press Two. It's a volume wah. If I'm oh. to have four pedals, th- that's what I'm gonna. That's what I'm gonna pick. Okay, so adding those two to my Amazon list today. Yes, mm. put them in. Yeah. They're, they are. Yeah, they're cool. <laughs> uh, Victor Lee, good friend, says uh, we want some insights on being a producer. Apparently, you've been doing a lot more producing. Yes, I have been doing a lot of producing lately, producing a bunch of records. And it is honestly something that I've done. I didn't know that that's what I was doing, but I was producing and engineering basically since I was in like eighth grade. I had a recording rig that I saved up and got. It was Mm -hmm. just kind of a crappy rig, but I was producing my own band and then some of my friends' bands, you know, making records together. Um, A big part of producing is about awareness and paying attention to details and paying attention to what is the focal point? What's getting in the way of the focal point? What does the focal point need around it to best be supported? And then make decisions about that. And I think it's a very simple way of doing that. But then other roles of producer is just being a good casting director. Like this this person that was producing the Blake Shelton record, they were being a good casting director. Like, let's get Corey. Rather than just, the other cats in Nashville who are playing all the other country sessions who might be kind of burnt out on this or might Mm. just do the same thing that they did on the other 10 records that they've done this week. Corey's going to do something different, but I know that I can trust him to not force his own ideas because he's doing his own stuff elsewhere. Like he doesn't have anything to prove on this. He's, you know, right. So sometimes being a producer is being a good casting director, finding the right people to play on something or that that's in the case of an artist and then you're putting a band together and and putting the music together for something. Um, in the case of producing a band, it's being a good diplomat, being a good extra member of the band, somebody where you can kind of come in with enough confidence to say, I think you should do this. This is why. Also, it's not because I don't like the guitar player or you know his feet stink on the bus, so everybody's mad at this person because of a month of all this buildup because you guys were on the road. Like I'm this outside thing, you know, so sometimes a producer is coming in like, hey, you know, I wasn't there for that fight that you guys had two months ago. I don't care about it. So the reason why I'm saying the drum fill is too much is not because I'm just mad at you as a person. I just think the drum fill is too much. 
Mm-hmm. You know, right. so sometimes a producer is just there as that kind of extra trusted source or whatever. It can be more objective than yeah. the members of the band. Yeah. yeah. All right. So obviously we have to talk compressors. Yes. Right? So we we did this compressor. Uh, you've been using the Eagle compressor for a while. We've been working together for a couple of years now, actually, to yeah. make the Wong compressor and to basically create your ideal. I'm going to say perfect. <laughs> Yes. expectation of what should be a compressor pedal. And he's saying that because we've done multiple iterations and uh, <laughs> hundreds of emails. And yes. as you and the Neural DSP crew know, I am, and Jackson Audio, I am relentless. Yeah. If my name is going to be on the thing and Fender as well with the guitar, it's like, I, I need it to be right. I, I know yeah. it's going to be work. Uh, and we're going to do another one. And, and believe me, when it's right, I, I, I want to be able to, to shout it from the mountaintop how great it is. And that I am doing about the Wong compressor. We've de- we've developed this. I mean, you you absolutely crushed with the Ego compressor. I remember the first time I heard that thing, I was like, whoa. Every other compressor that I've played through, it's kind of the, th- the sort of thing where it like, it, it messes with the volume, but it kind of like thins out my tone while it's doing it. Mm-hmm. As far as guitar pedals, a certain mm-hmm. rack gear, you got like a 1176, the LA-2A thing, the yeah. distressor thing. There's different ways that studio compression works, but guitar pedal compression, I've never been stoked about until the Ego Comp came along. It's like, oh, this one, it makes it feel like I compress, but it makes it a fatter thing. It makes it so everything that's big is fatter and all the mm-hmm. all the quiet stuff is is a little bit fatter. It, it does kind of contain the dynamics a little bit, but I don't feel like I lose control over it. A lot of people, when they listen to compressors or, or they're used to playing through compressors, like, oh yeah, I don't like compression because I can't control my dynamics. A lot of old cats that I used to, that were mentors of mine would be like, don't use a compressor. It, it sucks all your dynamics away. But I'm like, yeah, plug into this one. You know, <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, all of a sudden, you know. And, it almost feels still, like an expansion of sorts. Yes, totally. Yeah. And a lot of people nowadays still think like, oh yeah, it just kind of squashes my ability to control the dynamics. It's like, no, it, I mean, other compressors, yes, but this one fattens your sound. And in a lot of ways for me, it gives me a different level of control of my dynamics. Mm-hmm. So yes, we we created the Wong compressor, based off of the ego comp with a handful of changes uh, in some of the circuitry and added features with the boost and the DI out. Um, but I'm curious in that thing, in this thing that I'm talking about, how, how you approach compression compared to other pedal makers, why does yours, why, why do the ones that you make, why does the Wong compressor make it thicker and bigger and more dope mm. rather than just like, squishing it and feeling it lifeless like other compressors do so so the egotistical way is that egotistical e- egotistical <laughs> explanation is that unintended yeah um <laughs> you'll find people that are into like their thing you know so if you're if you're into chase bliss if you're joe corte from chase bliss you're into what they put out right and you'll notice that wampler tends to be like overdrives distortions and compressors mm-hmm. and that's because I am fat. I am completely fascinated. I go to sleep thinking about compression circuits, and I wake up thinking about what if we did this and created a new type of compressor. Like that's mm-hmm. just 
that's what I think about rather than uh, the next episode of Lost at night or, what, or sure. whatever, you know, whatever person watches. Do you Timely sleep day. with a Timely compressor reference. under your pillow? The trick is sleeping with compressors <laughs> under your pillow. Uh, but I, I think it's just being obsessed. I, I'm, an, I'm obsessed about guitar electronics in certain areas. And compressor is one of those. And it's just um, like you, like I, I, you know, I plugged into compressors over the years. I'm like, it feels like I just ran my guitar into like a box of plastic something. Like it's just, mm-hmm. it's like pouring syrup, corn syrup all over your food. Like it does a thing, but I don't necessarily like it. So I, I've always have kind of wanted to try, wanted to get a compressed sound that didn't sound cheap and plasticky for lack of a better word yeah and and it's that's always and even now like I, i've got new compressor designs that i'm coming out with and it, that's always the goal is like how do i push the boundaries of what people have done with compressors because I, I i mean i would love to put an actual la2a into a pedal mm-hmm. but the pedal would be huge with everything you got to do with yeah. it. i'm okay so with that i don't mind that you know and even the 1176 stuff i mean you you got companies that kind of do that but it it doesn't quite feel like an actual 1176 <laughs> yeah so so you know this that's just uh it's just obsession really i'm just obsessed with it yeah. I, and i gotta say with with the corey one compressor it very much is a case of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and, and i had the exact same feeling with the dual pantheon when i first got the compressor and i stuck the compressor on i was like yeah this is great i love this and then when I had that little mid-boost through it, I was like, now I love this so much. Yeah. Because suddenly, I had like three gain stages practically that I was controlling. Yeah. I run my amp a little bit crunchy. So I was like, yeah. I can actually make new things happen with this that I'm not sure Brian intended, but sure. I absolutely <laughs> love it. And, you know, it, it's got... And then I started playing with the DI, uh, with the XLR out on it as well. I was like, oh, I can have a... Signal go to my computer and my amp at the same time. Yeah, this is fantastic. So it, it was just like this is the perfect toolkit. You can like add this to a board and like for bass players, it's like a brilliant piece of kit because you don't tend to run a huge amount of pedals when you're playing bass. Maybe some time effect, whatever. But now you've got this DI out here as well. It's brilliant for recording bass. It's so useful. Yeah. So yeah, I, I like Brian's the nerd on the compressor, but I think with the 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 one compressor for me it, it's all that extra source we added to it yeah. really changes the game for me and and that's probably why people are buying them hand over fist right now that's an English yeah and phrase, I mean that's Brian. also I mean to me the functionality is like why are you going to do anything different it like wh- why why would I want to make a pedal when I wh- like why would we make the one compressor when we already have the ego compressor you know it's like well. There are certain things in the compressor itself that I could, we could kind of tweak to make a little more ideal to what I like rather than, you know, whatever. And then, you know, some of this added functionality where I thought, well, when I'm playing bass, I, I want to have that XLR out. I want to have that extra thing. And I use the Ego Comp on my bass. And I was thinking about, you know, I've been getting hit up by bass players, keyboard players, and drummers. I know a lot of drummers are starting hmm. to use pedals and things. One of my drummer friends was like, dude, so you're telling me that I could do an XLR out of this going right into my other stuff, but then the quarter inch, I could go into the other pedals and it can be like, I have the compressed thing on the front end and then this and that yeah. and that. And then I, or, or I could put it in the end of my board and I could do this and this. I'm like, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, and like you're saying with bass, you know, like 
most bass players, if they don't want to have a ton of stuff, you know, you can have this, you have the XLR out and you have, uh, you know, like the, with the boost circuit, you can either do just a flat boost or a mid bump boost. So it kind of changes some of the tonal quality and on guitar, like you're saying gain stage wise, exactly. It's a functionality thing. It's, I wanted that extra gain stage. So if I am already kind of, kind of running a little dirty, the mid boost, the mid section of the boost, uh, makes it feel like it has some of those tonal qualities of, uh, like a TS nine, like a, like a tube screamer mm. without added dirt of the tube screamer. It's just more mm-hmm. the tonal qualities of it, but it's boosting it a little bit. And then you want to add a little more grit, then you just add grit elsewhere. And it is kind of this, it's either like a final, like that little extra nitrous that you need when you're already at in fifth gear, or it's that thing that'll, before you turn the drives on, ah, let me kick this on to just kind of give it a little bit of a thing. It's all that functionality is like, it. those those are the reasons why you make new pedals is because you want that sort of functionality. Right. Well, I know we're coming up on an hour here. Um, so uh, to those listening, Corey's going to stick around for our Patreon, which is, as the Patreon members know, that's where things get a little crazy. So uh, <laughs> if, if you're uh, if you're in the Patreon, we'll see you there. If not, I want to thank, give a huge shout out to Corey. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, course, and let's, let's make sure we tell everyone where they can find you and your stuff at. The internet. You can find me on the internet. Yes. <laughs> Try I'm Google. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find me online. I got tours coming up. Got pedals, guitars. I got records on Spotify. Just search my name in whatever platform you use. I'll be there. All right. Well, thanks so much. And uh, we'll talk to everyone next week. Peace. Later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Chasing Dome podcast. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can email podcast at wamplerpedals.com, and I'll personally get your email. To email Blake, simply email info at tonemob.com, and Richard can be reached at richard at wamplerpedals.com. If you'd like to show your support for the show, the simplest and free way to do that is to share this podcast with a friend, leave a review and a rating wherever you normally get your podcasts, Also, check out Blake's podcast called The Tone Mob. And make sure you check out WamplerPedals.com for blogs, videos, and of course, guitar effects. If you'd like to hear the post-podcast conversations and to get even more content, twice the amount of podcast episodes, simply check out our Patreon at Patreon.com slash Chasing Tone Podcast. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. 